Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Okay, Baha'i Blogcast. Uh, it's me, Rain Wilson, and uh, apologies for the difference in the sound quality. This is a, a very different podcast. This is not what I expected to be doing right now. Uh, what an incredible treat. I am speaking to you from uh, an incredibly beautiful hotel, the Schatzalp, uh, up in Davos, where I'm here for the World Economic Forum. I'm here as part of a climate event, climate protest, with uh, Arctic Base Camp, a nonprofit that I'm on the board of and am involved with, um, that's really on the forefront of the climate of science, uh, excuse me, the science of climate change. And we're at this uh, antique hotel that's over 120 years old on the top of this little mountain. You have to take a funicular up from the town of Davos up to get to it. The view of the mountains is absolutely incredible. And up in the Alpine snow line, this is actually the hotel where Thomas Mann wrote The Magic Mountain. Um, A lot of films have been shot up here. It's incredibly beautiful. I'm looking out the window right now at snow-covered Alps peaks. I've never really been in the Alps. And I've been thinking a lot about Shoki Effendi and was reading a little bit about Shoki Effendi in, in the Alps and those many months or years. I'm not sure exactly how long he spent. I know he's, he took several trips to, to Switzerland. He loved it so much. Uh, eight, I think eight different trips. Um, and hiked uh, and bicycled up through mountain passes, you know, dozens of kilometers a day. Um, and as he got over his um, reticence at taking on the mantle of guardian, Uh, And he famously said, I fought with myself and I conquered myself for those many, many months he spent climbing mountains and he climbed mountains and then he metaphorically climbed mountains as the guardian of the faith for the many uh, years that he was guardian thereafter. And so I look out on these mountains and I I don't know how he did it. They're crazy big. These are some big mountains. I'm from Seattle. We're surrounded by big mountains, but these this this is uh, this is daunting. Uh, incredibly beautiful place, and I'm here for this conference, and people are here from all over the world. And then, lo and behold, in my in the lobby of this Schatzalp hotel, I run into one Brukti, uh, Brukti from Ethiopia, who I had met very briefly um, at a conf- a UN conference in New York. I mean, I mean, literally like 90 seconds briefly. <laughs> And um, she's here with me now. And at the last minute, I was like, oh, my God, I have to interview you for the Baha'i Blogcast. And so I grabbed a, an audio engineer, a, a media guy's phone and his microphone. So we're recording this on a DSLR camera That's a, and a very expensive, high-range high microphone. So it's, the sound is going to be a little bit cray-cray. Uh, but I'm here with Brukti and super excited to be talking to her about the work that she does. She's from Ethiopia and um, works in media as well. And her just the little that I've heard of her story is mind-blowing and 
heart opening and exciting. And I'm just thrilled to be uh, broadcasting her into your little ear nubs all across the world, whoever you are, little Baha'i blogcast listeners. Welcome, Brooke D. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's such a such a profound pleasure. What a great uh, it's, it's a great opportunity. Thank you. So, Brookdi, what brings you to the World Economic Forum? I am the social entrepreneur of the year, about a year and a half ago. So, I got invited to speak about uh, collective action. How can we um, social innovators come together to solve? One of the biggest problems we have, such as quality of education, uh, improving quality of education. So in that area, I want to share my experience and how we can scale local initiatives in places like Ethiopia. So this will be where I will share my experience while also learning what's happening around the globe. So you just kind of skipped right over that, but you're Social Entrepreneur of the Year According to who? The United Nations? According to the World Economic Forum and uh, the Schwab Foundation. Oh, wow. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Did you get any cash with that? <laughs> no, but I get to be invited to this kind of forums and meet a lot of people. Oh, that's a bummer. <laughs> I, I was hoping they'd give you a big wad of cash, but that shows you what a terrible Baha'i I am. <laughs> You're just here for the honor of the service. Yeah. <laughs> So that's wonderful. So you get invited to a lot of different conferences yes. uh, to to share your learnings and to learn from people in the same doing the same kind of things. Exactly, and I think you know we're we're at the time that the problem is so overwhelming that we are facing, and name it from a quality of education, inequality, or the climate. It takes. Um, everyone to really bring a bigger impact. So this kind of forum helps me to learn, you know, who's doing what and how can we work together and, you know, bring our impact in a, in a larger scale. So it's, even though it doesn't have many, it, it's still quite important. It's not easy to access this platform. And, uh, you know, people from my government, it's easier to talk to uh, Whereas, you know, when you are in, in your own country, it's hard to access them. When you are in this kind of meetings and conferences, uh, you know, becomes much easier. And for those of you who don't know, the World Economic Forum is a very fancy uh, conference, maybe the most fancy in the world, where billionaires, CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, all the CEOs, um, business leaders, world leaders, um, President of China came last year. President Trump is coming. Um, all kinds of people from all over the globe. Of course, Greta Thunberg, the climate change uh, firebrand, um, is going to be here. And, uh, and it's um, in one of the wealthiest communities in the world, in Davos, Switzerland, Switzerland, which has always been where the very wealthiest people in the world have come to to play and to ski and to shop and, and stuff like that. So it's a very kind of divisive conference where a lot of important work gets done and can get done, but it's kind of done by um, essentially the plutocracy, you know, and the bourgeoisie and the very richest and the very most powerful. So it's very, um, 
catalyzing, is that the right use of the word, where some people hate Davos and spit on the name and revile it, and some people really look up to it as, a, as an opportunity for big change to be made. But the fact is, it is it is the richest of the rich and the most powerful of the powerful flying in on their private jets and helicopters into the Alps to have these these meetings. Um, and then there's a couple of schlubby people like me and Brooke D who have been shuttled in. Yes. <laughs> so tell me, um, I want to hear about your story. I want to hear about the Baha'is in Ethiopia. Uh, but I'd love to hear, first of all, about the work that you do and the work that you've been honored for. So I uh, grew up in a poor community. I went to you know public school in Ethiopia and um, become a teacher. And in, in Ethiopia, you have to understand, like, you don't choose to become a teacher or, or whatever profession you want to. The government assign you because there's only few universities, especially at the time I graduated. So, and teacher is considered as a lowest um, profession because it doesn't pay. So I was very disappointed. In it's my, considered the lowest profession. Yeah, because it doesn't pay. You know, yeah. that is a matrix. Um, I know in Haiti, where my wife and I do some work, t- mm-hmm. teachers get an average about $3.50 a day. It's exactly. a same, such important work, and it's paid so low. Yeah, so, yeah, when I f- finished graduated, uh, I was paid $10 a month. So that was... $10 a month? Yeah, that was the context, yeah. And, but, you know, when I finished, just before we uh, graduate, there was this, um, you have to do teaching practice and making sure that you learn, uh, you know how to uh, display or um, put in place the theories you learn. So, and that was the first uh, turning point for me because the minute I engaged with children, I knew that was that was it for me. Like I was so touched, I was so humbled that the seven years old little people are looking at me saying that I know everything and they trust me. So that trust actually put me, you know, up at nights, like trying to do my best I can with a little education I have to provide them the best I can. And then, you know, I get to know and and the and the school I um was teaching, it happens to be Baha'i inspired. So I grew up as an Orthodox Christian, which is um, the oldest Christianity in Ethiopia. So I came from a very conservative family that if my mom hears me, you know, that I change my religion, she will probably pass out, you know. <laughs> so, so it's quite, uh, you know, we were very, um, I grew up in that context and but my school uh, is quite innovative. They started the first uh, children magazine, so I was so attracted by that innovation and uh, willing to serve, even though you know, no one pays for it. And the students are the one who brought the face to me, and they were, and especially who brought what the face, the the, the topics of the Baha'i face, and especially one particular student was keep you know inviting me to different firesides and he was just only seven years old so you were you were taught the baha'i faith by a seven-year-old yes <laughs> that's fantastic <laughs> so he um because you know the grown-ups were so um timid by it because they didn't want to uh, look at you know they're trying to influence the teachers on uh, you know on their personal beliefs but the students um who happens to be there uh, they 
they just, you know, tell you what they know. So, so I was very intrigued by it because, you know, what seven years old, you know, think about God in this way. And when I also share that to the teachers, the, the courage, it was so inspiring to me. So I started investigating and, you know, attending some of the uh, firesides. And so, um, so it was quite interesting, you know, uh, and, and, and then from there I learned yeah, and sorry to interrupt, but I think it's it's interesting because I've never met someone who grew up uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, and that is maybe the oldest branch of Christianity kind of on the planet. Right. Th- that can trace its roots back to like the year six hundred or something like yes, that. Thousands, or, yeah, over a thousand years ago, and there are churches, um, you know, hundreds of years ago, and um, so yeah, it's one of the oldest and it's, it's also interesting country because you find also the oldest muslim believers the oldest uh, jewish uh, uh, you know migrants were in ethiopia as well so it's quite a um, very spiritual country as well that's fascinating so jews who have practiced in the same way for thousands of years christians that have been practicing in the same way for well over a thousand years same with same with muslims and jews for even longer a couple thousand years kind of lend the the country a a real sacredness in in its religious practice and i'm wondering what was that like growing up orthodox christian in ethiopia this is probably the first and last time i'll get to ask someone that question it's quite um interesting i think for us you fast most of the year so you eat vegan food. It's quite healthy, and um, and you pray, and we have our own uh, letters and alphabets. The language used in the church are really old, and uh, I don't even know what they mean. Not many people know what they mean, but you have to go there and chant. So most of my weekend as a child is serving and you know praying and um, singing. So it's quite, uh, it's something that we have to do. It's not, uh, we choose, but it's something, you know, the family do and we love doing it. Because of all that, you feel grounded. You feel like uh, you come from such a rich history and um, and uh, culture. And that's how I grew up. But it's not something you chose. And it's interesting. So you're doing a lot of the services in a language that no one really understands. So you're speaking kind of an ancient Ethiopian Hebrew dialect of some kind. It's called Ge'ez. Um, Say that again? Ge'ez. Okay. Um, and I think Amharic language and Tigrinya language is also uh, kind of driven from that. Um, so yeah, in the church you wouldn't really know when they're chanting for hours, you're in that spiritual space. You feel it, but Mm -hmm. you just don't understand what it is. And then we still read the Bibles and the stories from the Bibles the priest will, you know, teach afterwards. Uh, But most of, you know, the two, three hours of um, prayers, you have no clue what that's saying. (laughs) And um, sometimes I hear Baha'i prayers and I have no clue what they're saying anyway. (laughs) So how do the... uh, the Orthodox Christians and Jews and Muslims get along in Ethiopia. What's that like? It's so incredible. I think that's one of the most interesting thing about Ethiopia. It's quite diverse. We have nearly more than 80 ethnic groups, more than 80 languages. 
you can find people from you know different shade of color size of people at the same time this religion as well as um, you know indigenous religion but uh, quite um, interlinked as well so if you track back my mom's side you might find Muslim family and my dad's side is you know Orthodox Christian uh, and Jewish also mixed so um, you know it's it's part of who you are in Ethiopia like that you will come from maybe four or five tribes and three of those religion might have been mixed through, along the way and that's um, what keeps that country also together because uh, you're so connected and nowadays that has been challenged I think mainly because of what is happening around the world um, people are picking up this divisive way of uh, communicating so currently as we speak the last two years has been the most challenging time of Ethiopia because people are start cornering people with different tribes and different religions saying you're Muslims so go burn the Christians uh, church. Wow so so Muslim kind of fanaticism and fundamentalism that has kind of swept the nation of course and we've been dealing with Christian fundamentalism for many hundreds of years but this new Muslim fundamentalism is is starting to rear its head in Ethiopia and there's more tribal conflict and more like trying people trying to pit Muslims against Jews and Christians and, and Christians against Muslims? Uh, yeah, I think mainly because of uh, it's cheap politics. I wouldn't even say, um, you know, the Muslims are doing it. It's just some politician using that, you know, they've, they've seen it working and for the benefit of the politicians and other countries trying to devise um, uh, people, you know, in certain group. So they are using that technique in this very diverse and very connected people. So you can imagine, uh, you know, when someone goes out and burn a, a, like a mosque, which happened, um, it's actually, it felt like um, the Christians also felt invaded. The same is true for the, the Muslim. Uh, so it's quite interesting country. It's not uh, because it is so connected when you know, people using it for their evil goods, it's really disrupting the country. So right now we're in a very unstable situation because of that. And you can really pretty much blame partisan politics for exactly. it. Exactly. Wow, that's that's terrible. So let's go back to your story now. You and this seven-year-old Baha'i yes. teacher. <laughs> at, and, and, how, and how did you come to get a job at the Baha'i school? It was just by happenstance? You yes, just kind yeah. of applied, just applied and they were like, yeah, let's take her? Exactly. I just applied and then they started. It was just a one-year-old school. And I actually even brought two of my friends because they were looking for teachers. And then we took it from there. So That's fantastic. So this seven-year-old takes you to some firesides and, yeah. and you're starting to really love some of the concepts of the Baha'i faith of, of service and service to humanity, yeah. um, universal education, education to women and girls. Yeah. Uh, so what, what happens next? Then, you know, we, I start looking at you know, what I drew uh, in comparison to what's happening in my country. Uh, so this 50, you know, 40 students are getting this education, but not most of them, especially when we talk about early childhood education. In my country, we have nearly 7 million 
young ones who don't have that access. And there are so many research showing that the early years that kids are not exposed to um, good nurturing, caring, and um, you know, stimulating environment that actually affects how they learn and how they interact in the world. So I wanted to bring a bigger impact in that community and I was trying to figure out how do I reach as many children as possible with good quality of education because at that moment the government didn't see the value of early childhood education. They were saying this is our focus is all about primary education. Uh, we need to get you know most children in the primary education so this is you know, luxurious thing you're talking about. So no one's trying, you know, giving attention to it. So you're you're talking about like preschool. You're yes. talking about like three, four, five year olds. That... Three to six years old, mainly up to eight years old. Um, so the school starts at seven years old. Mm. And the reason I'm I was motivated by that is because when I see children, you know, in in, in our school, where they exposed to early childhood, and kids who are just joining my you know, class at age seven and eight, they have huge difference. Like the difference is like day and night. So as a school teacher, I saw, I witnessed that children who haven't been exposed with early childhood education start feeling doubting themselves and they are, don't have the right competency level by age seven and eight. So then I realized that's why we have higher dropouts, not in high school or college, but in primary schools. Because kids already felt like they don't know how to read well, they're not good enough, they um, didn't develop the social skills, so they don't want to be in the schools. And the t- parents, when they don't see results immediately, they also kept them in, a, in, in home or giving them chores or doing other things. So I felt like there's a big need um, needs to be made, you know, getting children ready for schools and learning as early as possible. And But that wasn't um, something the government wants to do at that point, like, because they wanted to focus on primary education. So I had to find a creative way to reach masses of children. So with my husband, uh, Shane Atzenauser, who also happens to be Baha'i, we decided to... Um, just to start a, a media production where, uh, you know, we use the media to teach children and figure out a way to put that on the national media. So that was just our, you know, naive way to trying to crack this big problem. And um, So you started a, a children's television show. Exactly. We didn't know what we were getting into at that moment because I barely know how to use computer, leave alone, you know, production. And he also, he was a software programmer he just know how to write softwares like for audio production like pro tool and things like that but never used it but uh and, and tell me we still i still want to hear some missing pieces of yeah. your chapter about your baha'i history and and becoming a baha'i but since we're on this path let's take it but how did you meet your husband yeah so he was he came to do a year of service in ethiopia for a year and again it happens to be in that school. And, and where is he from? He's from uh, Kansas originally, but most of his life he was in California. And I didn't know they had Baha'is in Kansas. <laughs> they do. It's like three. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and um, but by then I already become Baha'i when I met him. But um, the, the he he was just there for a year and he didn't know um, the language. 
so he worked with the teachers uh, to say, you know, can we write a script? How can we do? How can we create a children media? And uh, it becomes more clear once I realized, you know, this is an opportunity where we can educate masses of children through the media. Although we still haven't had a clear idea how how to go about it, so we had to quit teaching and you know put our living rooms uh, with uh, you know bed sheets and start learning how to do production. So we spend a year literally just you know researching and looking at stories like Sesame Streets and other production, how they do it, what is the science behind it, how can we you know um, also tell the story from Ethiopian perspective so that children feel connected to it, what are the educational values should be, and all those curriculum we have to put together and then start a puppet show from the living room. You started a puppet show in your living room with bed sheets as the backdrop. Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's ultimate DIY. Yes. Uh, do-it-yourself uh, initiative. Unbelievable. And we, I used most of his socks basically to make puppets as yeah. well. So. <laughs> you used your husband's socks yeah. to make the puppets. That's fantastic. Yeah. And sometimes when we look at the puppets, he said, this is the long, you know, the oldest socks I have because it's been 15 years. I still, you know, dyed them with different colors. and. So you them. still make them out of socks or have you upgraded to actual puppets? Uh, so they actually, uh, socks all... All of them are socks puppet except one. I have a Muppet bigger one, and this year we moved to animation. So, um, yeah. So his socks are put in a nice closet, you know, like a, a trophy. <laughs> <laughs> you put the the puppets in a in a trophy case. His dirty old socks, fifteen yeah. <laughs> year old socks, and you moved. Have you moved entirely to uh, animation for your shows, or still some puppets? Uh, no. M- Right now, mo- mostly uh, animation and a little bit of live action when we interview children and parents and that kind of thing. But mainly now we're using animation. I feel sad that the puppets have been retired. <laughs> I love puppets, I yeah. have to say. Like, there's something just so beautiful about, they are. about a puppet. Especially taking them to the schools and, you know, playing with the kids. It's oh, do the kids just go crazy when they, saw, when they saw a puppet that they'd seen on TV in yeah. their school? They must have gone... It's, crazy. It's, it's so in- incredible because it's just a sock puppies. And then they, within a minute, they forget that it's in, on my hand and they just start talking to that, you know, sock. And it's, it's just uh, brilliant, yeah. There's a famous photo, um, French photo of children looking raptly at a puppet show on the streets of France from like the 1920s or something like that. Have you ever seen that, that no. picture? It's kind of a famous picture. I'll have to, have to look that up. <laughs> yeah, I have to find it. So I'm assuming that these puppet characters were doing some work around virtues yes. and, and somewhat Baha'i-inspired and certainly inspired by Ethiopian culture. So can you tell us how Ethiopian culture meshed with these Baha'i ideas of, of virtues-based education to create the stories that you were telling? Yeah. So we looked at, you know, for us, what's the most, um, how do we make the biggest impact possible? And that's education. And for to bring out the best within each child, we looked at, you know, um, the different aspects of learning from the moral education to social uh, emotional learning to uh, cognitive um, and other social um, 
uh, issues that only affect Ethiopia, let's say, could be about malaria, could be about HIV, AIDS. So all that while supporting the curriculum, because in the long run, we want it to be uh, part of the system. So we looked at these uh, educational objectives and then and used the Baha'i principle how to get across a message like this, the knowledge, perception, and then deeper understanding. And with all, we, we try to put different tools within a show. So even though it is 15 minutes, we use you know the puppet, the music, the games, and different activities to um, make the, the concept more concrete for children. So when we talk about truthfulness, what does that mean? And uh, so we create you know conflicts. Even though it is for preschool, we try to also connect it to their day-to-day uh, -day life. Um, so the things they see at the background, the music, the story, it's. Uh, and, and their mother tongue language as well in, in Amharic, which, you know, production like that never existed before. So Now there's so many, you said there's 80 languages in Ethiopia. How, is there one kind of common language of the country of Ethiopia and that was the one that you shot in? Right, so the, the, there are so many languages, but the official language is Amharic. And even in a different region, Amharic is given as a subject so that kind of connect uh, a lot of people. And the national broadcast is on a, an Amharic language as well. Wow, that's just fascinating. So tell me about some of the characters, some of these puppet characters and animation characters and how they came from Ethiopian culture. And also would love to hear about what impact the stories that you told had on the children, the policies, and the culture of Ethiopia. So one of the major... Uh, thing we've done is that you know producing things in local language is uh, something that hasn't been done before, and because children need to understand uh, in the language they you know been taught to in the, at home. So um, the show we start broadcasting about over twelve years ago went on national TV and we reached about five million children and. We adapted our show into a radio program where there's no television show, so that reached up to 10 million uh, listeners. And then um, the, the topics are, you know, about uh, moral education, which is, you know, about truthfulness, about uh, honesty and all that. And then we have uh, readings, how, can, how they can learn reading and writing easier. So the way we do it is that we use local stories and merged with um, the letters so that children will, uh, you know, that becomes to animation and, uh, and through the puppets so they can connect the stories uh, with uh, letters and increase their um, desire to learn. And then we talk about uh, specific issues that, uh, you know, affects uh, the community it could be about you know malaria, bacteria, or parasites and things like that, and health issues. Health issues, um, and now we are moving into you know more uh, steam. Like uh, what about you know we've done more than 150 episodes, uh, and now we're talking about you know science, engineering, and maths and art, and so th this year that would be our uh, uh, season focus. And who are the characters? Who's your big bird and your Oscar the Grouch? <laughs> so that's Ahai. It's Ahai is a six-year-old giraffe. She loves to learn. So the show is called Ahai Loves Learning. So she 
loves to learn from her you know little brother from her mom from the neighbor gash Eli, which means uh, uh you know uncle turtle who's 150 years old but who loves to read so he always reads her books to her and you know support her so we're trying to wait a minute here <laughs> You telling me that there's a gir- an Ethiopian giraffe who's an who got an uncle who's a turtle? Yes. <laughs> that makes no biological sense no. whatsoever. <laughs> no, but you know I'm not watching your show. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I will not do that. I think you're doing children a tremendous disservice. Right. So the thing is, you see, we want to show in, in our culture um, older people have bigger space. Like if an older person comes to the room, you have to get up and leave your chair. They should be served first. And um, and these are the values that uh, are unique to us. So we want to use that, uh, but at the same time, to children's learning. So how would a, you know old person would also respect a little girl or a little boy and share their values? Mm. Uh, so so we want to connect that. So the, this old uh, turtle is a great friend for with a six-year-old giraffe and and there's sometimes there's things he doesn't know and he has to look at books or computer and uh, and show tell her you know guide her so we want to show like even um you know old people or um, grown-ups can take time to children's learning and refer uh to you know, different knowledge and uh, make a space for children. So, so you know, one thing that's, that's interesting is I was just reading an article about um, Mary Shelley, the author, the English author of Frankenstein, and that her mother was considered by many to be the world's first feminist. And her father was the person who wrote essentially the world's first book on children's education and uh, I really should look up what year this happened, but I'm, I'm thinking mid 1800s. And it's really kind of dovetails, obviously, with the revelation of Baha'u'llah that he wrote about the importance of children's education, of, of teaching children a love of learning, a love of curiosity, and how to be leaders and to teach them about health and that we should kind of honor the journey of children, and that this was revolutionary concept in pre-Victorian England. It was like, what? I mean, it really angered people all over the country at this time. So this this whole idea of like honoring children and the journey of children and the education of children, it's such a recent concept. I mean, you think before 1850, it literally didn't exist. Children were meant to just be seen and not heard and just be obedient and essentially kind of little slaves to their families. Um, this is a very, very new kind of, uh, of revolution. Yeah. And that is the culture predominantly in Ethiopia still. Children don't take much space. They eat less. They are not, um, you know, they don't speak up in the family or especially within, in front of grown-ups. Uh, so we want to show that dynamics uh, in a positive way, how how we can turn that in a learning opportunity and teaching moments for for the older people, for the grown-ups, as well as for the children. And within that, we also, sh- you know, when we design the show, we also try to show other things, such as, you know, the equality between men and women. So the Tzahai's mom, who is doing, you know, not... Um, 
the typical work of the house mom or things like that. She's an engineer. She works in construction. And oh, wonderful! Her mom's an engineer in, in construction. That's great. And what is her? Is her mom a giraffe or yes. you know, like, like an earthworm or a, a marmot or something? This, this time we we keep the you know the family. <laughs> And the dad, you know, have a little shop within the compound and he cooks for the, the children and takes care of them. So we want to show that dynamics that it's okay, you know, to support each other in the household work. Do some people get angry about this in Ethiopia? Like, wait a minute, you're having a, yeah. a mom who's an engineer and a dad cooks food for the kids? What's going on with this <laughs> social justice warrior, lefty, right. politically correct BS? <laughs> Uh, not really. I think we we try to work with uh, lots of people. You know, even though we have very little budget, we we attract lots of people from you know different uh, background and field of study who come and consult as a content advisory group. So we consult a lot how we can uh, draw a fine balance between you know respecting the culture while also introducing a more fair and uh, just environment for children to grow up. So we managed so far, you know, to really, you know, get across very important topics uh, while bringing also um, new uh, perspectives. And how have you seen uh, the efficacy of the work that you've done? Has, has there been uh, impact that you can point to? Right. So kids who have been exposed with our content, they have shown incredible result. They have shown double knowledge gain than kids who are not exposed to it. So if, you know, with science uh, um, topics, for example, they know that their gain was 100% than children who are not um, seeing our videos or books on reading. Kids who have been, you know, watching high level learning, have shown, you know, by 15% more um, better later identification, uh, comprehension, and, and things like that. And then the recent impact study showed, these are studies conducted by third-party uh, research institutes. And the recent shows that in one project we have had also training parents. Uh, so with 10,000 parents, we worked uh, with them to take books home and read with their children at home uh, over the weekends. Beautiful. So in the program, we uh, involve parents where they take books home and over the weekend and read with them. They showed, uh, the children showed 80% school readiness to go to grade one and two. And, you know, so that means they will succeed better than the kids who are not exposed to this kind of content. So because of this impact, we managed to integrate our work into the curriculum. So now 410 schools, which is about 200,000 children are learning using these materials. So, they so you develop materials from your shows right. that you have shared with both parents and parent groups to support them in reading to the children, but also have made turned into a curriculum for schools right. in Ethiopia. How many again? So we are supporting the language learning as well as the science uh, curriculum. So we have done over 100 episodes, the books and flashcards and different learning materials have been integrated in the curriculum of 400 schools. So that is reaching about 200,000 children. Now, one of the issues in Haiti, um, and I know they're very, very different, but uh, that I've gotten to know 
pretty well going there for the last 10 years is the, um, so much of the population doesn't have access to electricity, let alone a television, let alone a radio, let alone even a cell phone that has a, can get a YouTube channel or something like that. I, I imagine there's similar challenges in Ethiopia. So two part question, have you managed to transition the work you're doing to social media, YouTube channel, Instagram, Facebook, video, um, any live streaming, stuff like that. Has that been helpful to disseminate it? And also how, what have you done around, you know, the whole areas of the country that I imagine don't have access to the TV channel? So the way we are tackling that is working through the schools, because most of these children I'm talking about, these 200,000 children don't have access for TV in their home, but they do come to the schools because, uh, so in the schools have electricity uh, and that kind of infra infrastructure. So we build a classroom library a, a, or a corner, as we call it, a high corner, where we put the TV, the um, you know Android device, where we collect data and where we put also the show, so we know which shows they are watching, how many times they are watching it, and also building you know teacher training videos and uh, building the capacity of the teachers. So this uh, resource center will be placed in the schools so that that little resource center can serve up to 500, up to thousands of children. So that's how we are trying to tackle the, you know, the inequality of the um, electricity or technology that doesn't uh, get to everyone. And what about social media? So that's uh, still not a big um, uh, thing in Ethiopia. I mean, it, it is in the cities, but not to the target population that we're trying to serve. Mm. So anyone who can access a TV on national TV can also get our, our program for free. But at, we are also on, uh, you know, YouTube and we're building, you know, our own uh, video platform. That's mainly for people who a well-to-do family who wants, you know, connect their children to the culture and language in Ethiopia or in abroad, like in the U.S., the diaspora community. For the people who really needs it and doesn't have a, an opportunity for quality of education, is this is how we do it in the schools, by helping the schools become a better um, learning environment. That's amazing. And how are you doing this? What is what is your staff like and how do you raise the money? Do you get government grants? And also, is it possible for listeners to donate? Do you have a nonprofit arm? Um, we do have partners, um, you know, from government to uh, government donor like UECID um, to Packard Foundation and Rotary but also uh, corporate um, partners. You know, we are, as a social entrepreneur, we needed to be financially sustainable. So we also sell our products, our videos and books to people who can afford it so we can bring it back to the, you know, content production. So we have a diverse way of, you know, trying to get money and trying to, uh, you know, support the work. Uh, there are partners who have non-profits in the U.S. who can also get um, donation on behalf of us. Great. Which, which partners? It's called the Butterfly um, uh, 
blue butterfly it's uh, works in haiti and works with us they also consult um, sesame street it's a non-profit that helps on children education and bringing quality education where um and, and this kind of areas. Oh, wonderful. And so you can donate to your yeah. programs through Blue Butterfly. I have to investigate that. That's wonderful. Yeah. So let's go back to your Baha'i story a little bit. So the seven-year-old is bringing you to some firesides. Yeah. And um, what, uh, what happens to you? Uh, what happens in your heart? Well, you know, at first I was just so inspired by him and, you know, how he talks about different concepts. And then when I, and I also personally have huge questions, you know, things like how, how, how is God going to punish this many Muslims, you know, billions of Muslims? What is the right religion? How does religion work? Um, and is there any one religion that is right and everyone is wrong? You know, and I can't ask this kind of question in the religion I grew up because it's, it means that, you know, of course there is one religion and how dare you, you are asking this question. That is the, the, you know, environment I grew up. So when I went to, you know, these firesides and uh, conversation, I was welcome to ask any question and everyone is investigating, everyone is learning and there's no um, judgment and, and I start, you know, and also a lot of learning is left to me that I have to investigate the truth by myself. So I was, I was so attracted by it, and I, you know, I fall in love to the face, and um, and I, um, and then I figure out this is this is the right path for me, and and uh, it's interesting the way I even declared was um, I still I was living with my mom because if you don't. If you're not married, it's not common like to live by yourself. So you have to live with your parents. So I was living with my mom, and she found um, a sleep, you know, a coat with, uh, which has um, the name Bahaullah in it. And 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 um, and she was so furious at me, and she said, you know, do not lie to me. You have to tell me the truth. And and at that time, I didn't declare, but she asked me, what is this? Are you? Did you change your religion? And then at that moment, I knew actually I was a Baha'i because if I said no to her, I thought I was lying to myself. If I say yes to her, uh, that's also a lie because I didn't really officially uh, declare. So so I just left um, that day and I said, you know, how do I sign up? What is this, you know, what is this? How do I become Baha'i? Because I feel like uh, at my heart, I am a Baha'i now. So... Wow, that's beautiful. And how did your mom take this? You not only became a Baha'i, but then you married an American not long afterwards. Right. <laughs> well, she didn't. Um, she was. I. She didn't take it easy at at the beginning, and for a long time, she still in denial. She didn't want to hear about the fees or didn't want to talk about it. She just want to be like, you know, let's not talk about it. I, I think you are Christian, and I don't want to believe that you. you your Baha'i, but you know, after a while, she actually fell in love with my husband, and she th- she thinks you know he is her da- he her son than me. Mm. You know, so, um, he won her over you know his love, and he's a great person, and um, and I think she's okay with it now. Now she see you know what we do, and I think she understand religion is not separate from our life. That it's not something we do, uh, you know. 
over the weekend or over, you know, it's just very integrated to what we do. So she, she sees through our work that we are influencing and uh, supporting a lot of people. So I think she loves the face, but she doesn't want to admit it. I think that's where she is. <laughs> and what's the Baha'i community like in Ethiopia? It's a very vibrant community in Ethiopia, and um, and it's growing. The phase is growing a lot, and so much people are doing a lot uh, in, in the you know the core activities. Um, so there are children class and everywhere there are you know people are doing um, taking parts in, in all activities. And in my community, we have. Um, junior class, children class, and devotionals, almost all activities are happening. And is it spreading all over the country? Is it mainly, mainly in the capital city and some of the larger cities? Some of the larger cities, and um, there are people who pioneer also to smaller and rural areas. Uh, but currently, I think everyone is also learning with the new uh, you know, system. How do we, from, you know worshipping and doing things together now we have to do things in our neighborhood and that's been a new learning for a lot of, a lot of us so um but you know from that point of view in terms of you know including uh, our neighbors and um bringing new people to the phase has been a quite a transformative uh, process and are there many people that would not consider themselves bahais that are part of the institute process exactly. teaching tutoring facilitating volunteering exactly yes so especially when you look at different um, uh, junior youth classes and children classes where the parents come and facilitate you know the classes might not necessarily be Baha'is but believe in in the you know content and and the way how things are run and they want to be part of that community so you see a lot of people being taking part of that uh, those kind of activities and what's next for your media company? What what do you call the media company? It was called Whiskers Workshop. So currently we're, you know, in 400 schools uh, with uh, preschool uh, and early learning activities. And we want to get that to 2,000 schools, which is about uh, impacting directly to 2 million children. And then I, throughout the years also, I'm, you know, we're learning that children, the other the next um, critical age is the adolescence, and especially for girls. Girls are um, taken to early marriage and dropping out of schools because they start menstruation and they are needed for house chores. So it's quite a critical time. So I've been working on this age group as well. I had other shows uh, helping that age group. Now I started a new TV series. It's a Pan-African series called Tabab Girls. So it features three superhero uh, African girls who are fighting social injustice. So they're... Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So they're evil being, you know, kids going to, uh, you know, through under, um, under uh, female genital mutilation, and how, how they stopping that and how they bring the community to work together to uh, move away from this kind of negative social norms. Uh, so the idea is that by, you know, creating this kind of um, uh, program, uh, starting a new mindset, uh, how to spread the word of, uh, you know, boys and girls equality and uh, also developing new agencies like collaboration and respect and uh, 
problem solving uh, and those kind of uh, learning skills. So the way we are doing it, uh, the three superhero characters, each of them have different power, but it doesn't work by themselves. So they have to come together. So every time when they unite, their power actually activates and they are able to help um, you know, kids who are in distress. And the message we're trying to come to bring is that one, we need to see more African characters on the screen, uh, especially female characters. And uh, so we, we, we're trying to do a few things within this show. Um, at first, uh, that, you know, communicating the social um, injustice, uh, trying to address issues like that's not easy to talk about, uh, you know, the negative social norms such as uh, early marriage, female genital mutilation, or... Um, the equality between men and women. But at the same time, we want to bring uh, Africans together to work on the show. So we have artists from Nigeria to Kenya to Uganda. Uh, and the idea being that just like the show and the characters, they have to come together to unlock their power to serve others. The, uh, it's time for Africans to come together and to unite to solve our own problems. So the, these characters are more symbolic in a way that the social issue uh, that we are facing, the problems, if we are opening up our hearts and work together, they're not that hard to solve. So we want to instill that kind of thinking in the young ones to um, come together, solve your own problem. So, um, so having also the characters being female, being African, on a screen is also important because what they see is what they believe. So unless they see themselves as a powerful being, which they are, every human being is a powerful being, um, they they don't understand um, that the power was in themselves to all along. So so we're trying to activate that power within themselves by coming together, working together, and solve these critical social issues. Oh, that's just that's beautiful. That's so powerful. And uh, Brukti, tell me, what spiritual uh, issues are you struggling with right now? What is your deepest, most personal spiritual struggle? Uh, few. <laughs> I, I think the one being um, one being detachment, detachment to in a way, like, for, to the work I'm doing, because, you know, I've, I've, we've done this for 15 years, and with I Love's Learning, how do I, you know, um, scale to the point that it reaches the entire country? And that requires a little bit of detachment as well, to hand it over to the government or to hand it over to uh, someone with much power, uh, to, to get it to where it needs to be. So spiritually, I need to practice that, um, you know, detachment to the, to the point. And, um, and another thing is that, um, you know, we, I, I believe as a Baha'i that I am a global citizen. I am, you know, um, I believe in unity. Uh, at the same time, I also struggle, you know, how to keep identity um, you know, the Ethiopian identity, the African identity, so that children grow up in a way that is, um, they're comfortable with who they are mm. and they can 
compete and they can have a space in this world which is very competitive so mm. as a Baha'i I always struggle like how to draw that balance yeah that's a that's a fascinating struggle and many people I've spoken to both on this podcast and friends of mine that are Baha'is have that have that conflict as well how do we balance being a world citizen we're all children of God on this planet where all humans are equal and at the same time you know, empowering ourselves, especially the voices that have been held back for hundreds or thousands of years, women's voices, people of color's voices, disenfranchised voices to have a, a pride and a voice um, with their background to, to, to rise up uh, and feel that they're worthy to serve and to ask and demand that their rights be met and their needs be met. And not something I've had to struggle with as a as a suburban white boy from America, but it's uh, it's certainly a, a struggle I, I greatly uh, respect and admire, and it must be tremendously difficult. Right. And then another thing is that what I do is so consuming. Um, I get lost, uh, you know, and I wouldn't, you know, always attend the Baha'i events or I wouldn't be you know, proactive as much as I want to hold different core activities. So I sometimes say to myself, you know, I'm working on this show that's going to reach, you know, in five countries, 50 million young people and, um, you know, encourage them to think this way. But at the same time, spiritually, I feel like, um, you know, I'm not really doing enough. So it is always hard um, to say, you know, uh, I'm doing service to the face. Right. That's, that's something I struggle with as well. Like so much of the work I do is Baha'i inspired, but I also want to be a part of junior youth activities and devotional gatherings. And I'm not exempt because I'm working in the media, you know, so it's, but it's, but it is a struggle, but it, it, it takes a lot of time and commitment. You know, I'm not, I'm not an accountant who works nine to five and then has all this time available to, to do other activities. So I can certainly respect that. But we like to talk about struggles on this show because it just keeps it real. You know, Baha'is might be listening to you and going, oh my God, she's so amazing. She started a whole media project and affected tens of thousands of people in Ethiopia. She must be some kind of saint or something. And, but it's always helpful to hear about the struggles that people have. Exactly. No, it's a daily struggle. It's actually, you know, sometimes I wish I, you know, take myself off of all these projects and just serve the face. And sometimes I feel like, you know, I'm actually given this opportunity to serve the face and how, you know, I just need to balance it. Um, so it's a daily struggle. And can you share for, for me and for the listeners uh, a prayer in your in your native language, uh, Ethiopian language? I like to have people, I just had a guest who is Icelandic say a prayer in Icelandic. Um, I would love love to hear a prayer. Do you know which prayer would you be sharing? Um, talking about difficulties. So uh, maybe I share the, the prayer about... Um, um, shall I say it? Yeah, okay. It's about testing difficulties? Yes. Okay. Testing difficulties. Kagziabhir bestak air chigirani miaswakid allaway. Bell, er suksiabhir no, swamblak no, 
ሁሉም ማገልጋዮቹ ናቸው ሁሉም በተዛዙ ይኖራሉ። It's beautiful. So that's the is there any remover of difficulties? Is that the same prayer? Yes, and I'm like Oh, that's beautiful. So it's so great hearing that prayer revealed by the Bob translated into hundreds of languages all over the globe and people saying that you know with with humility asking for help surrendering to God's power understanding that um God is the one who's who's really able to fix our tests and difficulties. Mm-hmm. That's so beautiful thinking about that prayer being said in all these languages. Exactly. Yes. Well, uh Brookti, thank you so much for being on Bahai Blogcast. What a treat it was to run into you in the Alps. I know. It's amazing. I couldn't believe it. I was like, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So I saw you 3 months ago in New York City and then saw you here in the Alps. So, um have a wonderful conference and thank best you. of luck. Uh, I hope one day to be able to come to Ethiopia and, and see the work that you're doing and uh, we wish you the very best and maybe people who are listening can can donate we'll we'll try and put links below on the behind blogcast page because I'm sure you could use all the financial support you can you can get. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And are are there can Bahais do a youth year of service there um, oh, yes. with at your at your company? That would be huge. Yes, uh, we actually um used to have a lot of Baha'is use of service um, volunteers, not recently in the last three years, but we used to. So, in fact, that's how it got built up, this whole um, enterprise. So it would be wonderful if we can find anyone who wants to, you know, serve through media, children education, use empowerment, uh, gender equality, this would be the place. If you bring puppets back, I'll be there. I'll do it. Okay. Well, we'll bring it for you. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I want to play the turtle uncle. <laughs> Great. It's a role I was destined to play. Yes. <laughs> the turtle uncle. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Bahai Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Bahai stuff on bahaiblog.net. Thank you so much. 